Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Here today, my friend Jamie Stegmeyer of Stonemeyer Games, the guy that's created Scythe, the... Uh, what might be the best game in the country right now. People are saying it's the best of the year. I'm, I'm one of those people. I think it's an amazing game. Uh, Jamie's the, the Kickstarter guru. You might know him on, on his blog. He, he's got more information about Kickstarter than I think the, all, all the internet combined. And so if you're running a Kickstarter, check out uh, his blog over at Stonemeyer. Is it StonemeyerGames.com? Stonemeyer Games, yeah. Yeah, so Jamie, really appreciate you being on the show, man. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Gabe, for your uh, your first episode, apparently, maybe. Right? Episode yeah. one, and I was telling you earlier, you are the first-round draft pick. Like, you were the guy, <laughs> when I was making the big, long list, brainstorming potential guests and game designers and publishers and Tom Bassel, you know, all the people in the gaming community, you were the guy I was like, if I could, you know, who who do I want for episode one? Jamie Segmar. That's the guy I want. And I actually waited a little while before I emailed you because I was a little oh, yeah. nervous that you'd say no. And I didn't want, I didn't want my dreams to be crushed there at the beginning. <laughs> And so I actually emailed you later, but what's funny is the people I emailed first said no, and you said yes. So oh, really? I should have just gone right to you. Anyway, there's there's a lesson to be learned there. Just go for it. Just take the risk. So anyway, I really appreciate you being on here. Episode one, really excited about this podcast. I've already got some really incredible guests uh, lined up for the next uh, 12 episodes. I mean, it's just been crazy, the, the, the people just responding to me and wanting to jump in at these different specific topics in game design. And so today awesome. we're talking about what no one tells you when you first get started in board games, in board game design. We're going to look at a few different uh, specific uh, topics inside that topic. But, Jamie, you're, you know, you've been expert. You've been around, what, since 2013? You launched your first game in 2013. Is that right, Viticulture? That was when Viticulture was released, yeah. But you started when? When did you really get into board game design? I started when I was really young. When I was six or seven, I, oh, wow. I started designing games. Um, so I have a few things that came to mind when I was thinking about things I wish people had told me then, and then we can jump to like adult stuff. Um, but like back then, when I was designing games, it was definitely just for fun. Um, usually, I would play a game and then make my version of it. Like I think my first game design was something called like Medieval Quest, and it was basically Monopoly, but in the world of medieval games. Yeah. And I think with that one, I think the one thing I wish people had told me. Um, and this is kind of a, an overarching theme was that after I like wrote down the rules and made the board, I felt like I had designed a game and technically I had, but really that's just like the tip of the iceberg for the game design process. Like the first prototype is not a, a, a design game, right? It's, and I kind of wish, I, I kind of wish someone pointed that out to me, but I'm sure, you know, I was six or seven. No one was going to tell me, Jamie, you didn't actually just design You didn't design a game that just got all encouragement back then. Um, so that would have been helpful to, to hear that, that that's just like the very beginning of the process to have that first prototype. Gotcha. So, so what you're saying is when my daughter who's five right now, when she's got my little game components and she's designing, I need to tell her, well, you have you play tested it because if, until you play test it, this is just an idea. Is that what I need to be doing? Okay. I'm going to write that down. Gotcha. So, all right. So you designed games as a kid and then did you just kind of continue on until you became an adult or was there like a gap in between of design? There were some gaps. I mean, the, it, when I was young, it was I had a lot of time, and so I did a lot. And then uh, as I got older, maybe every couple of years, I'd have an idea that I'd pursue, and I'd make that. And this is why I mentioned that that advice because I, I'd make every every time I'd make that first game, and we'd play it once, and that would be it. 
And I wish I had just even played it one more time and treated it like a play test. And so, yeah, I did that every, every couple of years um, leading up to, I guess, my, my adult life when I discovered games like Settlers of Catan and Agricola. And that's when I started thinking about it again. And at that point, what I did was uh, I designed some expansions for those games. Um, and that was actually a really helpful design tool to take a game that had already been extensively playtested and, and well, published and to, to spin off a, a, you know, a, an expansion for it. That was a fun design challenge. So I guess somebody didn't have to tell me that, but I, I happened to do it. Right. Now, were any of those things that you tried to get published, or was it just trying to figure out design for yourself? It was just me trying to figure out design for myself. Um, but now that I'm a publisher, I, I realized that, uh, you know, I, when I design a game, I, I try to put er all of my ideas into that game, and then sometimes I'll revisit it and think of some expansion ideas for it. But sometimes I don't have any of those ideas. And so if... I'll say this to other designers out there. If you ever spend a lot of time on an expansion to a game that you just feel is like a fan-made thing and that you would never approach a publisher with it, if it actually is really awesome, a publisher or another designer might really appreciate that because they may have run out of ideas. So that I wouldn't. I, I like that you said that because I, I hope other designers, if they, even if they're just playing around with an idea and they've developed it and play-tested it, publishers want to hear about that or even des designers want to hear about that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a publisher... From their standpoint, anything that can add to a game that can help them make money, that can create the, you know a better experience for their customers, they're going to listen yeah. to you. They're going to want to hear you out. Um, so that's that's great advice, man. You run the risk of creating something and putting a lot of time in it and nobody wanting it. Uh, you sure. know, and if it's got a specific IP, if you're trying to make a Catan expansion, well, it's hard to turn that into another type of game. But if yeah. you really believe in what you're doing, go for it. Excellent. Uh, and so. So you did the expansions. Now, Viticulture was your first game, came out in 2013. But when did you really start working on that? That I started working on in um, kind of the fall of 2011. Um, and there are, I guess, two main things that I wish someone had told me when I was working on that. The first one being, actually three. I'll hit them real fast. And you can let me know if any of these are interesting to you. Yeah. The first is, I wish I had known um, to uh, the, the value of blind playtesting. I had local playtesters, friends that I playtest with, and, and they were, they're blunt friends. They'll, get, they'll give me honest feedback. But the value of blind playtesting is really being able to put together you know, a complete package, especially the rules, sending it off to someone who doesn't know you, doesn't care about your feelings, and tries to learn the game from those rules and play them. And that is just so valuable. Um, and I didn't know that at the time. I didn't really realize how important that was, and I wish I had. Um, the second thing... Uh, that I wish someone had told me, is that I wish people had told me, and I really should have figured this out on my own, I should have been more active in the board game community, especially the online community at that time. Um, there's a, you know, a wonderfully robust and healthy and, and just an amazing board game community, especially on Board Game Geek, but there are other places too to talk about board games. And I wish I had been more involved in that, both for a design perspective and uh, kind of just, well, so I could appreciate it, and for their marketing perspective, so that when it comes time for me to 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 sell my game, that I'm not approaching people for the first time and saying, "Hey, here's my thing. You want to talk about it?" Mm -hmm. I would have already established those relationships. And the last thing that came to mind um, is that I wish I'd played a much broader variety of games at that point. At that point, I play, like I said, I played Settlers, I played Agricola, I played um, Stone Age, and a few others. But really, I wish I'd played a lot more games and a much broader array of games at that point, um, not just you know, like Euro games. I wish I had dabbled in a lot of different areas 
because I've learned so much since then from playing tons and tons of different games and from watching, listening to podcasts like yours, what yours will become and, and listening to to our reviewers and just le- consuming as much information about a wide spectrum of games as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Man, let me, let's me let just go through each point. Um, yeah. Blind playtesting, that's something that, that nobody tells you as a designer that you don't think about it as yourself. You know, like you don't just come yeah. up with this idea, oh, I need to take this to total strangers who don't know me, don't like me, and let them play it. You know, because yeah. what happens is you let your mom play it and your cousin and your dog, and they all love it. And you're like, man, I've created the next Monopoly. I've got the next best game. I'm going to be a bazillionaire. Uh, right. And it's not the case. And so it's so important to have people who have no investment in your life whatsoever. They can say, yeah, this is garbage. Because you're going to yeah. save yourself so much time and, and energy and frustration in the long run by knowing that early, you know, and I, it's funny, I was talking to a guy the other day and uh, he had this idea and he was, I mean, super pumped. He was so excited for this idea. It was going to be the next best thing. And I said, well, have you, have you done any blind play testing? And he looked at me and he said, like, like with Braille, like, no, my game's not going to have Braille on it. Like, uh, like people with disabilities. Like, oh my gosh. Like, no, 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 no. <laughs> and just having to explain yeah. what blind play testing really is. There's so, it's probably the most valuable thing you can do. It oh, is, yeah. is just get in front of people, especially with that rule book, and say, here's yeah. the rules, step back, and just see what happens. Right. You know, and take notes and watch body language and watch how people are, you know, are they on their phone during your game? Are, are they engaged? Are they getting up to go get a sandwich? You know, you learn so much about this. And this is one thing I love about board game design that you don't get in other creative venues like art or books or whatever, is you get yeah. this player engagement, this this customer engagement that's right. unlike anything else. And it's a lot of fun, but it's also extraordinarily difficult. And, and people need to know that on the front end. So if you're designing a game right now and you've got a cool idea and you're not blind playtesting it, you need to blind playtest. Something then, I've started doing with that too is I, I have like, – because I'm rarely there in the room when it's happening. I, I usually send it out. Mm-hmm. I've been having people uh, videotape their uh, playtest. And so I can watch – and see, this is something I learned from Rob Davio and Matt Leacock when they were doing Pandemic Legacy mm-hmm. playtesting. They would videotape it, and they would watch that stuff that, you, like you said, when people are looking at their phones, when people, uh, when they like spend longer discussing a rule than you think would be possible because they're, they're confused about the way you phrased it. Um, when they're actually having fun, like when they're laughing, when they're smiling, when they're really thinking, you can see all that on on camera. Yeah. Uh, that's really, really and uh, especially on a camera, you can. It's a more efficient use of your time as a designer because you can skip through the video. Mm-hmm. You can play it at at two times speed if you want on YouTube at least. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And let's be fair. Anything that they did for Pandemic Legacy, we need to figure out yeah. and do it again because yeah, exactly. that's the number one game in the world right now. Right. So let's copy right. that. But, you know, I played football in college, and, man, watching film, we hours and okay. hours and hours a week watching film on everything. We would watch the way that we, like, stretched and warmed up. Like, they filmed everything, yeah. and we'd go back and look at that. But we had a big sign in our film, film room, our big team room, and it said, uh-huh. you are what you put on tape. Like, it doesn't matter what you think you are, what you believe down in your heart. You are what the tape says you are. And if you are if you miss a tackle, if you're not doing well on the tape, that's who you are. Right. And so, man, that's that's hugely valuable. And I love that idea of filming it. There's a little more to it. Um, you know, yeah. you're, But, gosh, the value of being able to watch it, go back and rewind it and watch it again. Because if you're there in the room, you can't watch everybody at the same time. You exactly. Know? And so the tape yeah. allows you to kind of focus in on everybody. Man, that's awesome. Right. Um, same thing, community. That keeps yeah. coming up and people I talk to that release games that they thought, man, I had this great idea, but then nobody bought it. 
Well, did right. anybody know about it before your Kickstarter, before it got published or whatever? And the answer is right. usually no. You know, it's like, well, do you have an email list? What's that? Oh, okay. Well, we got to start from the beginning. You know, do you have right. a website? Do you have anything to let people get excited? You know, bring them in right. and get them on the team. I know you talk a lot on your blog about having ambassadors, and we can yeah. kind of go into that because uh, that's something nobody talks about when you're first getting started. It's having ambassadors and mobilizing people. And how did you come to have that idea? Where did that come from? That came from after Viticulture was on Kickstarter, or kind of during while it was on Kickstarter. I started noticing that, and this is something I, I just, I also, I just had no idea that people would volunteer their time to do anything, right? Because that just, I, I understand how that works in like charities and nonprofit organizations, but I just didn't have a concept of that in in a, in a profit-driven world. But people are so passionate about board games and many things, but board games in particular. Um, I, I, found, I kept finding more and more people just volunteering their time to, to proofread or to play test or, or to, uh, to, to moderate the, you know, the forums and, and, and just answer questions. And I was just amazed by that. And so I wanted a way to, um, to figure out who those people were who re were really passionate about Stonemaier Games in particular and wanted to continually volunteer their time rather than just every now and then. And that's how I started the ambassador program. Gotcha. What I find is people want to be on the team. Like they, they want to be, yeah. they want to be yeah. a part of it. You know, if you think going back yeah. kind of a sports mentality, what do people say? They say we won. Well, you weren't, you weren't right. on the field. Like you were <laughs> right. up in the sand. You were watching from home on TV. We, who is we? But people want to feel like they're a part of something right. bigger than themselves, and and that translates oh. into games and building that community. And you've done an incredible job building a community over at Stonemaier uh, Games on your blog, on your Facebook page, and you're you know you're posting stuff all the time. You're posting updates, and that keeps people engaged. That keeps people aware of what you're doing and keeps them excited. And then you have this group of raving fans that become right. your marketing. You know, that you don't have to go out and spend a million dollars on marketing because you have the word of mouth. And the word of mouth, people trust that more than anything anyway. And right. so, man, it's hugely valuable. So if you can start building the community from day one as opposed to trying to catch up, you're going to be at yeah. such a, an advantage um, way further ahead than, than most people. Right. And then that third point, playing games. You know, I've got uh, – there's a couple of links on the, the Board Game Design Lab site that actually link to – blogs and articles where people say play these games if you're just starting out a desire play these games and here's why and it kind of gives you a whole just variety of different kinds of games some of them are really good some of them are really bad like some yeah. games are really bad but you need to play those too so you understand what yeah. makes a bad game as much as a good game and i'll put the links to those in the in the show notes uh, any games in particular you would suggest to people to play well one that i mentioned in the past that was just a surprise to me because um, i love euro games so much and i don't enjoy party games mm -hmm. But then someone introduced Telestrations to me. Have you played Telestrations? Yeah. Yeah. And I just have a blast playing Telestrations. I love it. And it, it's, uh, I don't know, I've, just, I've learned a lot of things just by playing games like that that just were so far out of my comfort zone that have informed the designs that I make. Um, and so it's just, it's one of those things where I had a closed door, basically, to that entire genre of games. And that one game opened that door to, to all of them. Um, yeah. Definitely. And with any other creative thing, you know, you're going to become a better writer by reading more books. Exactly. And yeah. that's just the way it is. You, you learn what works. You learn uh, what other great people are doing. And you learn, first you learn how to copy. It is what it is. You learn how right. to emulate them. But then you find your own voice. You know, and what you're saying about absorbing just as much information as you possibly can, that's going right. to gonna give you your own voice out of all the stuff you're absorbing. It kinda, you can kind of figure out who do I want to be. And you can kind of decide which path you want to take. Yeah. Uh, definitely. So 
let's kind of jump into all right so what what did people not tell you you wish they they had about like specifically design as far as like mechanics or working with theme or anything like that um well you know there's always a debate of like um do you start with the mechanism or with the theme right um and I don't, I don't think there's like a consensus answer and I, I wouldn't want someone to, to tell me that one is correct over the other I, I kind of just found my own process for that but I wish what's the thing that about that, that I wish someone had told me um, fairly early on and then I, I realized fairly early on was that in the end it's not really the theme or the mechanisms that matter what matters is that people that get, the gamers have uh, the players have interesting choices and that they're having fun yeah and so Sometimes that means that I have to sacrifice a thematic element so that people can have more fun. Or I, I have to sacrifice a mechanism that I was really, really excited about because people aren't having fun with it or because there aren't interesting choices in that mechanism. Um, so I kind of that, that's something that, that I always kind of keep in mind and that I recommend other designers. No, absolutely. I mean, people play games to have fun. That's why we do it. Right. You know, right. um, <laughs> there's all sorts of opportunities to do a million things right now in our world. I play a game because I want to have an enjoyable experience with my friends. What I, what I told somebody the other day was don't create a game, create a fun engine. And that when people put time into your engine, they get fun out. Right. Yeah. And, and just, like yeah, create this experience because you can have the coolest, most just amazing complex mechan mechanics in the world. But if people play yeah. your game and hate it, they don't enjoy it. They're not going to play it again. And so, right. you know, what are you really trying to accomplish as a designer? Are you want to make sure everybody knows how smart you are and how clever you are and, you know, how all these things you've learned? Or do you want people to right. enjoy your games? And I think that's the, the difference. And, and telling people that early on so that they'll not get so caught up in uh, the complicated me uh, mechanisms and all that stuff. Yeah, make complicated mechanisms, but make them fun. Make them enjoyable. Yeah. Definitely. Something else that comes to mind too, Gabe, in that, that realm is as a designer, I – Early on, I, I designed games that I wanted to play, yeah. which is still relevant. And I'm, you know, I, I need to be excited about a game like the game that I'm designing right now. I'm excited to play it. That's good. But what I've learned is that after one of my games is released, I actually spend a lot more time teaching the game than actually playing it. Mm -hmm. And so I've kind of changed that mindset a little bit. And when I'm design, designing the game, instead of making a game that I'm excited to play, I make a game that I'm excited and eager to teach and that I'm not annoyed to teach. Because, you know, there's some games that are annoying to teach or annoying right. to learn. And I think that's a big barrier to entry to anyone who wants to play a game or teach a game. But it's something I do recommend to designers. But remember that you're going to be teaching this game a lot and you're probably not going to be playing it all that often. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I think we all have games on our shelves where if someone says, hey, what about that game? You go, yeah, I don't feel like teaching that right now. Yeah. Let's play something yeah. different. Let's do something else. And so that's a yeah. great point to, to design a game with that in mind, you know. Yeah. And then yes, you're true. You're, you're going to teach the thing a million times at conventions, at playtests, just telling yeah. people about it. And, uh, man, that's that's a great point. I, I read an article the other day about um, designing your game with story in mind as far as your rules go, like designing your rule book yeah. with story in mind so it flows well and it's easy to understand, easy to teach. Uh, and right. people don't teach you that either when you're first writing rules. You know, it's, right. it's like very robotic. A right. to B to C, as opposed to the flow. But people learn through story, right? And so and they, they remember through story too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, you know the best the best books we read usually aren't the self help books that tell you do this, do this, do that. It's the ones that give you a story that kind of yeah. you you pull the information out of. Absolutely. Oh. Uh, anything else to add on the design stuff? Things you wish you'd known? Um, something that I, I 
I, I wish someone had told me was uh, to avoid exceptions to the rules as much as possible. Um, it kind of ties into what you're saying about story because it helps people learn it, helps people remember it. Um, if you have a lot of little exceptions to the rules, it means people might spend a lot more time looking at the rule book the first, the second, the fifth time they play it, um, trying to remember like you know those those little things that are different than everything else in the game. And so I, when I when I finish a rule book, I always do a search of that rule book for the word except mm-hmm. or unless words like that that like indicate that something is different than the usual circumstance and then sometimes it is necessary to have them yeah. but i try to cut down on as many as possible yeah i mean you're always going to have the outlier cases where yeah. some random chain of events creates this weird thing in your rules and you, you know that happens but right. making it as simple as possible so people aren't living in the rule book so they're actually living at the table and enjoying enjoying the experience yeah. definitely um what about with art? You know, what are, what are some of the things that people didn't tell you about with art or working with artists or, and all that when you were first getting started? Yeah. So with Viticulture, um, when I was thinking about the art for the game, I have an artist friend that I hold in high regards. He's a good guy. And so I went, I figured, okay, well, I can, I can kill two birds with one stone. I can help a friend. I can make him some money because I was going to pay him for the art. And I can have great art for Viticulture. Um, and so uh, my search for an artist there was no search at all. It was just okay. I've got this guy who I know who who can kind of who could probably do it, and that art is in, in Viticulture. That's actually on the Kickstarter page because I can't edit it, but um, it's not in the final version of Viticulture because his style of art ended up not really being good for the type of game Viticulture needs to be. And he does everything by hand, and so it doesn't translate well to the digital world. Yeah. So basically, I really instead of picking a friend and going to a friend, I wish I'd gone to everyone else. And looked, you know, found a bunch of artists that I like their styles. Gone to them, seeing if they were interested, seeing what kind of a budget it could, I could have gotten them for, um, and that would have saved me time and money because I ended up paying this artist and then switching to another artist and paying that artist as well. Gotcha. So, so yeah. look, look for options. Look for options. Yeah, op- yeah, definitely, especially think, outside of your friendships, because yeah, it's yeah. I had a similar thing. I, I, my first Kickstarter was actually a book, just a. A little zombie book I had written years ago, uh-huh. and I wanted to put some illustrations in there. And I had a friend, same uh, scenario, I had a good friend who's a pretty good artist, and it took forever for him to finish. But he's my friend, you know, so it's hard to right. like get angry right. at it. You can't really fire your friend. I mean, you can, but you know, it creates problems. And so right. that, yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you on that. Find find somebody else. Find somebody. Kind of going back into blind place testing. Find people that don't know you necessarily. That you know don't have some big. Uh, investment in your life you don't have to see them at thanksgiving or whatever right exactly. you know, yeah. no doubt uh what about with graphic design so it's kind of a similar avenue but then very different so what, what about with graphic design well i actually did the same exact thing with graphic design um <laughs> so I, I i learned from that up front I, I think maybe the big thing with graphic design is that um there are graphic designers who are really good at designing um the user interface and uh the iconology designing great icons and designing like card frames, a great card frame, card can, frame can really help any card look better. Yeah. And then there are also graphic designers. Sometimes they're the same person, but I found that more and more often they're different people. There are graphic designers who are really good at all the under the surface stuff, the stuff that I don't understand, like how to prepare printer files so they're they're just perfect, how to layer them perfectly. Um, and usually, there I found that they're just different people. The graphic, a graphic designer who's great with an icon may not be great at taking spe- very specific instructions from a printer. And getting those printer instructions right, and you need both of them. Yeah. 
Um, so if you're lucky, maybe you can find somebody that does both of those things. But I found that I need to divide up those tasks between two different people. Gotcha. And also not assuming that somebody knows exactly what they're doing for anything yeah. is asking the question, hey, do you know how to submit in this kind of a file format or change things? Right. Definitely. Especially and that icon thing can be misleading because you could find a graphic designer who makes these beautiful icons and you're like, okay, they, they must be good at everything. But exactly what you said, that surface level stuff is just a small part of what a graphic designer does when they're preparing something for print. Right. And I think there's also a lot of value in finding people who have already been through this and yeah. saying and asking these questions, not just assuming you know it all, not just uh, not just assuming that a graphic designer is going to tell you everything, but yeah. going to people who have done Kickstarters or published games and asking those questions, those in-depth questions that you have no idea about. Like, I have no idea right. about graphic design. I know nothing, you know. And so finding people who do and then listening to them and finding advice, that's why your blog is so... Uh, such a valuable resource is people can go there and find nearly, I mean, I don't know if there's any stones you have left unturned. I mean, you've kind of <laughs> gone through the full gamut over the last couple of years of, of everything from Kickstarter to art, to graphic design, to marketing, to community, all those different things. And, and so it's yeah. awesome to have that kind of a, a resource. Uh, and something gave here yeah. well, before we move on from art and graphic design, because um, we're talking probably to a lot of designers right now who maybe some of them want to be publishers as well or self-publishers, mm -hmm. but some of them may just want to be designers. And if that's the case, um, when you submit to a publisher, the publisher doesn't really want art or graphic design done. Yeah. They want a clean a prototype to play with, um, but they don't want you to have spent a lot of money on art because they're probably going to scratch that, uh, you know, get rid of that art and do make their own or hire their own artist. Yeah. So that's something I think, you know, if, if you're just a designer who wants to have someone else publish your game, it's one less thing to worry about, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Have art that works, that, that shows right. what this, you know, this card is. You can have a little stock image or clip art or whatever. Exactly. But, th I mean, yeah. how much how much would be too much for somebody to spend on a game? Like a big game, not like, a, you know, a little tiny game, but like a big game. How much would be too much to spend? If they're going to submit to a publisher? Yeah, right. Ooh, I mean, I think at most they could get they could pay for like one or two representative images that really capture the feeling that they want mm -hmm. the game and the art to evoke. But spending much more than that, I mean, it's up to you. If a designer wants to do it, but I can't imagine anyone feeling good about that in the end when someone, when the publisher inevitably says, we're using a different artist, yeah. all this money that you spent is going to go to waste. Or we're I'm changing sure the theme entirely. Changing the theme entirely, yeah. yeah that could definitely happen. Yeah. All right. And so, gosh, a lot of people, I was one of these people early on. I had this game, really cool idea, uh, and then just jumped all in and spent, you know, not, not crazy amount, just a few hundred dollars. But it's like, man, yeah. was that money really well spent? Because now it's just, it's just, it's still just a prototype on my shelf, you know, right. but I invested the money in it and all that. It's like, well, I probably could use that money for something else. Uh, right. But you get excited, you know, you got this new thing, this new creature you've created and, and you want to, you want to jump in, but you know, just take a step back and, and yeah and be a little smarter about how you, you spend your time and your money. Because another thing that will happen to people is they'll get uh, really caught up in the, the process of the art, you know what I mean? And so instead of using right. their time to design, they're over there contacting artists and looking on uh, Tumblr or uh, DeviantArt or whatever, trying to find art. So it's like, well, you could use that time to actually design your game or play test it a bunch more or whatever, and, and you're probably better off using your time for that. That's great advice. I like yeah. Uh, yeah, I like that a lot. Right, or or you've if you got an idea for a game and you're already contacting Panda Publishing, <laughs> trying to get a quote, you know, it's like well, <laughs> what? You know, and you oh, feel, that, yeah, you feel like Go you're ahead. working, you feel like yeah. you're doing something towards your game, but 
but you you probably would be better off just using your time to play test or create more uh, more of your game. That's true. Although I think there is, I mean, I think there's a good side of that too. That might be too early to contact Panda, but learning about how much components cost. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about that. Can be pretty big for design because you might be designing a game around a component that you're really excited about or a series of components you're really excited about. And the game might end up really dependent on those components. And then you might get that quote from Panda or you might send the game off to a publisher and they have, they already know how much those things cost. And it's going to be a hundred dollar game, you know, yeah. because of how expensive that is, and that not not to manufacture, but to to sell the MSRP. And so I think having some idea of how much manufacturing costs are for different components can actually be pretty helpful in informing your design. That's a great point. Do you know of a way to do it faster than contacting a, an actual like manufacturer? Because going through the Panda quote yeah. process takes. I mean, it's it's, it's not a, a quick process. So is there a, a better place to find the numbers for those things? Well, I think going on like, well, they could probably comment on a website like yours and you could help them. You could go on the, the board game designers uh, forum. There's a forum for that. The, on Facebook, you know, there are different groups. Usually there's at least some people in those groups who have gone through that process and kind of have a rough idea. And if it truly is a new component that no one has made before, then, then that's a reason that you could go to Panda. You can just email them, them directly to see. But usually if you post on one of those forums, I think someone is going to chime in and, and give you a rough idea. Right. That's a great idea. There's so many people on those forums and Facebook groups that have done this and would love to share that information and would love to share what they did wrong and say, hey, don't do this. Don't use this right. component. Don't use this company, whatever it is, and kind of help people through what they've learned. Uh, another right. thing I, I do, I'll go to the Game Crafter and just see how oh, yeah. much it costs to get one on them. Cause I know, you know, their costs are a little inflated because they're having to make money, you know, <laughs> so right. they, they up their cost a little bit, but you can still get an idea of how much a die will cost, how much a wooden right. token, whatever. And you can kind of get a, a snapshot at least of what a game might cost roughly. Yeah. So that's another thing I would recommend. That's a good. Uh, yeah. I like that. Well, cool. Well, um, let's move on to another one. What did nobody tell you about Kickstarter that you really wish you had known back with Viticulture? A lot. Yeah. <laughs> That's a huge topic. Let's, let's pick one or two things. Yeah, the, just the big ones. Touched, one of the big ones you already touched upon, which is having some sort of a crowd or awareness of your product and your game or your whatever your thing is uh, before you go to Kickstarter. You can't just expect to show up on Kickstarter and have it mag- have people magically show up. Yeah. Um, yeah, you, you wrote a blog post that said it's not Kickstarter's job to give you backers. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Which and it, it appears like that to an outsider, right? But it that's that's not Kickstarter's job. They, Kickstarter does talk about a few of the projects on there. Even then, it's not a magical thing. If you if you don't have good art or good graphic design, if you don't if you don't put together a great page, if you don't have fair prices, then none of those things are going to matter. Even if Kickstarter ends up pr- promoting it. Mm-hmm. Um, what else do I wish people had told me? Yeah, like what uh, what were some of the big mistakes you had made with Viticulture? I mean, it funded. So, I mean, you, you yeah. did well enough to fund and to actually eventually what you do now. You, I mean, you started a company early right. on with that. So it did fairly well. You succeeded fairly well. But what, how could you have succeeded more? What could have been better? Uh, the art and graphic design is definitely a part of it. That could have been much better. Um, really, when I think back about Viticulture, I think of the a few things that uh, almost could have really prevented my company from ever existing at all. And one of them was that I kept throwing in new stretch goals. And I, I had a plan before I went into the project. I had budgeted out certain things. But during the project, you know, it's it, you're on like a high during a project, during a successful project, because you have all these strangers from all over coming in, coming over with their ideas. Um, 
And I, I'm learning on the fly to say no to some of those ideas. But in, in Viticulture, I was saying yes way more than I said no. Mm-hmm. And the, the one near miss that really could have sunk my company very early on was that um, I had a metal coin stretch goal. And metal coins are not a stretch goal. They're, they're much too expensive to do. Metal coins are a good add-on, but not a stretch goal. And I had a stretch goal for metal coins, and we ended like $2,000 short of that stretch goal. If we had raised just a little bit more and hit that stretch goal, my company wouldn't have had enough money to make euphoria, period, and probably would not exist today. Mm-hmm. So $2,000 difference because of that stretch goal. So I wish I had I'd budgeted that better and, and not said yes as many times to the enthusiastic backers who had so many great ideas. Yeah. But they're not the ones budgeting it. They're just coming up with fun ideas. It's right. my responsibility as a creator to budget. So thank goodness you didn't make more money. Thank goodness it's I crazy to say, but yeah. 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 Wow. Uh, so that was a near miss that, that I, 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 that's one of those things that I knew, but I didn't really know until I was there in the moment. Cause it's just, you really are on that, that you've experienced it. Yeah. The high of, of having people support the thing that you're passionate mm-hmm. about. Absolutely. And, away. and you get so much confirmation, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like this time and effort and energy and all this I put into it and people want it. They like me. They really like me kind of moment. And then, right, right. and you can, that can go way off the deep end. And that's sunk a lot of people. You know, it didn't happen to you, thank yeah. goodness, but it, it has happened to a lot of people. I backed a project a couple of years ago. There was a, a big like comic book kind of thing. And then it became a hardcover and then it became bigger. And then it got the slip cover over on the outside or whatever it was. And the guy, yeah. I mean, he, he didn't have near enough money when the project ended, he didn't have enough money to cover all the costs. You know, and so he had to run another pro- another campaign to try to make up the money, especially because of the shipping. The shipping is oh, what got yeah. him because it went from like an eight and a half by eleven up to a nine by fourteen, and the, and the weight went way up, and that changed all the shipping numbers, and that totally ruined any opportunity to have a company, any opportunity to make money long term. And so I think yeah. that's another thing is being aware of shipping. Like, yeah. have you run into some issues with that that you were like, oh shoot, I didn't even think about? Yeah, that happened with viticulture as well. I I. Um... When I was so I budgeted out shipping in advance, but I ended up thinking I was doing the right thing by simplifying it. So I grouped like all international countries into a twenty dollar level, and then U.S. was and Canada were free. Um, and that that's just that was a really bad idea. And so when I was preparing to actually ship the games from from the factory in China around the world, um, it was a little earlier than that. It really hit me that I needed to find a much better system. And that's when I came up with a system that, that's pretty well known today, where you send games to different fulfillment centers around the world, and those fulfillment centers fill, uh, send the, the games out from in that region, from that from that region. Because um, up until that point, most creators had just sent all their stuff to to like the U.S. and then shipped it out around the world from there. Um, and that's how I was going to do it, but I would have lost a ton of money if mm-hmm. I had done that. Because shipping to to uh, France from St. Louis is like $50, but shipping from France from uh, Germany is like $10. Mm-hmm. That's a huge difference. Yeah. No, that's that's the difference between having a company and not. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about that kind of money between, I mean, you having to work a normal day job or being able to run your own board game company, <laughs> that's, that's very much the difference is figuring out how to do things uh, as efficiently and as cost-effectively as possible. Right. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really, and I'm really glad people like you have figured it out. So people like me can now borrow all that information <laughs> and learn from yeah. it. Uh, what about from the, uh, moving on from Kickstarter, anything else from Kickstarter to add? Um, wait, what was that? I had one other thing about Kickstarter. Um, if I remember, we'll come back to it. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. what about when you decided to become a company, when you said, I'm going to publish my own game, I'm going to, I'm going to do the whole thing. 
I'm going to become a project manager. I'm going to become a businessman, which a lot of people don't understand that there's a big difference between game designer and business person. Uh, yeah. What do you yeah. wish people had sat you down and said, all right, know this, learn these things? Well, you know, that's one of the things I actually think that I did right. And that's still a learning process. I'm learning to budget my time and, and use my time effectively. But the thing that I think I did right there, uh, I know this is the opposite of what we're talking about, things I wish I had known, but I'm glad I knew this. Basically, when I funded Euphoria, I had almost $300,000 put in my bank account in one day. That's a lot of money to have in a bank account ever, <laughs> and especially all at once. Um, and I think a lot of people or some people get that money and they feel like they actually have that money, that they, that, that money really is in their bank account and that they can quit their day job and, and spend all that money to make the thing and then send it out. But really, what I realized, what I'm glad I realized is that I didn't have that money at all. That money was there temporarily so that I could make the game and ship the game. And it was only really after I had done all those things that I could know that I really knew how much money I had left and if I could actually make that a sustainable thing instead of a one-time thing. And so the thing that I did was that I didn't quit my job the day after I funded. I kept that job for a while. I ended up going down to four days a week. And so and then I went down, then I fully quit after we had uh, shipped Euphoria. Um, so that, I think I did that right. I, maybe I could have waited a little bit longer, but I basically I didn't quit my job the day after I funded, which would have been a huge mistake. Yeah, realizing that that money's not profit. It is yeah. not. Yeah, that, that all of a sudden, if you have you know if you have three hundred grand in your bank account, that's amazing. Until you have three hundred yeah. five thousand dollars worth of costs. Well, now right. you're in the hole, right. and now you're now right. you don't have a job. You know, uh, right now you don't have a job anymore. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or you know what I've seen other people do and you know they fund everything looks good they made all this money you know turn into like a mega project whatever then they do quit their job and then all of the business costs eat into the money that was supposed to go towards the game towards the shipping and all that and because they started a business they don't actually have enough money to do the game so they don't have enough money to do what people paid them to do and a lot of people get very very unhappy when that happens (laughs) very angry people they want to hunt you down it's amazing what you're saying earlier people are very passionate about board games and especially yeah. when, you know, they drop 30 bucks on a game and it's going to be delayed six months and they're up in arms. Like, they're crazy upset. And so let's talk about that. What, what do you wish people uh, – what do you wish you knew about fulfillment and actually getting the game in people's hands that, that would have helped you out early on? Well, this is, a, this is a more recent lesson, but it ties off of what you were just talking about in terms of uh, how passion and excitement can manifest in different ways. Um, Because that passion can quickly turn to anger. Mm -hmm. It can also turn into a really high level of enthusiasm and joy. Um, One thing I think I did right for all my projects, fortunately, was that I kept people in constant communication. So even if things were going wrong, if if something was later or earlier, I would would tell them. And I would tell them what's happened at the factory. And so it wasn't like I ended my projects and then six months later I had my next communication with hackers. That was good. But what, what I learned on, uh, on Scythe, fulfilling Scythe recently, was really about that, how, uh, really it was how emotionally draining it can be to manage uh, or try to manage that passion in so many other people and how that passion is manifesting. Um, and, and really coming to terms with the fact that I, I, as much as I want to have control over how people are responding to it, that I don't, that I can't control that. The best I can do is communicate and try to get things done well. Um, I know that's not very specific, but it's just, I, I was surprised by the emotional toll it took on me. Things don't usually get to me like that, but it was just 
a barrage all day of people asking where their game was, where their game was. And this was for a game that was shipping early. So even though we were ahead of schedule doing everything great, um, I was still getting that barrage of requests and, and, uh, and enthusiasm, but, uh, but it was a lot to take on. Yeah, I think so. a lot of people don't realize that you know, failure comes with its own struggles and all that, but success comes with a yeah. lot of struggles as well. And let's talk about yeah. that. What did no one tell you about creating what some people call the best game of the year? Um, and I, I, it's, it's so weird to hear that, that yeah. it, there's so many games that came out this year, so many great games. Yeah. Um, but I'm honored that, that, that you think that and some people really are enjoying Scythe. Um, the, uh, the, I guess that, you know, the biggest thing that I've kind of caught on to is how, uh, people's perception of, uh, of what other people are liking or disliking. Some people call this hype, right? You know, the, that, that, uh, people's response to a game can be heavily influenced by, by that hype and how much excitement there is. So it, it really creates really, really high expectations, and so I'm trying to I'm changing the way my company works a little bit and to kind of decrease that hype a little bit. I, I want people to be excited about our games, but maybe not a year in advance, maybe just a month in advance, a few weeks in advance, so that there's a very short window between them getting excited and when they actually can receive that product, mm -hmm. which is really hard to mitigate on Kickstarter because Kickstarter, you, you pretty much have to launch it many, many months before you can actually deliver. So that hype, that excitement is spread out over a big period of time. Um, but I've just I, I've learned that with with side side being so successful that it, it, the expectations that people have for it are really really high. Yeah, one thing I've learned just in normal marketing is always undersell and over deliver. Mm. But like what you're yeah. saying with Kickstarter, you you kind of have to you have to sell it as best you can because you want as many people to back it as possible. And you kind of need that hype to, to build the backer base and build the funding yeah. and reach those stretch goals and all that. And so, man, it's right. super difficult to manage all that. Uh, as far as managing the pressure, do you, do you feel a little more yeah. pressure now? You know, like with your next game, does it have to live up to the same kind of standard that you've set? Um, I might feel that a little bit, but I just, I, I'm still having fun with it. So that, that hasn't, you know, I'm having fun with the the charter Charterstone is the game I'm working on now. I'm having fun designing it. Um, I, I'm hoping people will like it, but uh, but I, it's such a different game than Side that uh, that I understand if if people don't like it as much or if some people like it more. Um, so yeah, I, I wouldn't say that that's a that's a big factor at this point, but maybe it will be when when Charterstone comes out if people really don't like it or if they like it more. I I, I don't know. We'll we'll see. We'll yeah. see how I respond when it comes out. Yeah, it's one of those things. You can waste a lot of time feeling the pressure, but you're really creating that pressure for yourself. Like yeah. nobody's putting that pressure on you. Like nobody's going to come to your house and beat you up if Charterstone's right. not as good as Scythe. Um, right. But and, and no matter what you do, any creative endeavor, people are going to like it. People are not going to like it. People are going to love it. People are going to hate it. And you yeah. just create the best thing you possibly can, and you get to a point, you put your seal of approval on it, and then you step back and you feel good about it. And I think that's all you can do as a as a creator, or as a designer, or as a publisher, as as all three that you are. Well, and one thing I have learned from doing this, again, that I thought of as you're saying this, is uh, being able to sit back and enjoy it. But at the same time, what what I did with uh, Viticulture and Euphoria is that I spent, I think, too much time reading reviews and all too often commenting on those reviews, especially on Board Game Geek. And what I so I think that was a bad idea. I, a, I think people, some people did not react to that well. Because for me, I'm just engaging the community, talking about the community. But 
sometimes those comments came across as defensive. Like if someone said, I don't like this aspect of the game because of this, I would chime in and say, well, here's the design idea behind why I made that decision, which I think to some people is interesting, but to others, it, because it comes across as defensive, like I'm trying to change that person's opinion of the game, um, which is not my role as a designer. I, you know, it's not my, it's not my place. And so I wish, um, so I've changed that method and now I'm on board game to answer questions and to clarify things about the game. Like if someone plays a rule wrong and they, they want to, I can help them play that rule correctly. But I'm not, I don't comment on reviews at all anymore if I can avoid it. Uh, just because I don't think, I don't, it, it didn't go over well to do that. Yeah, and I think that's a very valuable thing for people to realize and understand. Um, yeah. One, as a designer, we you know we do get defensive because this is our baby, this is our our, yeah. our yeah. thing that we've put so much time, and we do want to defend it. Uh, yeah. But it never that never turns out well. Like ever, <laughs> that, no one ever goes, "Oh, I see what you're saying. Oh, I like your game now." Like that <laughs> never turns out well, and it right. it always comes across as as, uh, as defensive or uh, like you're offended now, and it escalates. Right. And yeah, I think there's a lot of value designers can learn from just stepping back and letting the community. In that regard, be what it yeah. is. Being a guide, you know, kind of guiding them. Okay, no, you played the rule wrong. Here's how. Here's how it is. Um, right. But also an opportunity to learn. You know, to say, yeah. okay, people, you know, are really don't like my game for this reason. How can I learn from that for my next game, so I can kind of, you know, figure some things out. Definitely. Yeah. But also not getting so engrossed in reviews. Like I know right. I've got a lot of friends that are authors. You know, that get so caught up in that Amazon review, that one star Amazon review. And they yeah. just like they they take it to heart. And it's like, well, people don't like your stuff. That's that's okay. Like, it's let them yeah. let them not like it. You're, you're going like the sun's going to come up tomorrow. You'll be fine. Don't take that as an insult on you personally when somebody doesn't like the thing you've created. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Anything else that just kind of in general? Anything that you had ideas coming in of, of things you wish you had known early on? Well, I remember the Kickstarter thing. I was going to say. Um, one thing that I, so before, when I was preparing for Viticulture, I looked at a bunch of different projects and I created this big spreadsheet of what other projects were doing, um, like looking at the, the prices that were effective or, or the methods they used that were, that were effective or that weren't working. Um, and one thing I kind of wish I had known at that point uh, was that just because another project has done something and has been successful uh, doesn't mean that it's good for my project or even the right thing for backers to do. Um, an example of things that I've kind of learned from that are especially early bird rewards and exclusives. People have different opinions about those. I respect those different opinions. For me, they weren't a good fit after I used them. But I did those things because I thought that they were the right way to go because I had seen successful projects do those things. Right now, there's a super successful project on Kickstarter called Kingdom Death Monster. You know, this raised like over $6 million. And I'm excited for, for the guys that are running that campaign. I always worry, though, when I see a campaign like that, that a new creator is going to discover that and think, okay, if I have a reward level at $1,600, if I have an estimated delivery date in 2020, uh, like they're, they're going to take the wrong lessons from those super successful projects. So I kind of think the idea is to uh, to be informed and, and back other projects and learn from other projects, but but don't think that those things necessarily lead to success. Yeah, absolutely. That sense? Yeah, no, you know, it goes yeah. back to watching film, so to speak. Going other, yeah. you know, watching yeah. film that other people are doing, learning how you can kind of emulate and do well. But if you've right. got a a fifteen minute card game, a take that game, you're not going to make six million dollars uh, <laughs> the way Kingdom Death has made six million dollars. It's context. There's so much context that goes yeah. into it, uh, and I think Kingdom Death. It, this isn't their first go round either. 
It's right. Not, yeah, I think he had a failure, then he had a, a small success, and then he had a big success, and then this one. Right. Yeah. And so learning from that as well. This is not, totally. you know, this is years in the making. You know, but that's what happens a lot of times. We we kind of compare our behind the scenes to other people's highlights. You know, right. and we yeah. look at what they're doing really, really well, and then uh, we, we, it just doesn't work out. And so really understanding the context, yeah. what has led into that kind of a, uh, a success or whatever it is. Yeah. Definitely. Anything else? Um, I think the one last note I had was that your first play test of any game is probably going to suck. <laughs> that happens with me. You know, at, at this point, I consider myself a somewhat experienced designer. Inevitably, every first play test sucks. It's going to happen. That doesn't mean that you have to give up on the game. That's... Sometimes it does. I think you mentioned that earlier. Sometimes that means that it's, it's not going to work. But uh, that's another thing to, like, I've learned to prepare myself for that, and I just know it's not going to be fun. It's going to suck, and that's okay, and I can make the second prototype. Absolutely. Um, yeah. The difference between idea and prototype is a humongous, just a chasm of, of difference. Yeah. But then the difference between prototype one and prototype two is, <laughs> is just as big, if not bigger, right. because you, you really find out, oh, that doesn't work at all. Oh, those numbers right. are way off. Oh, people hate this part of the game. <laughs> oh, right. I hate this. You know, but you don't know yeah. that until you do it. But right. just like any other creative endeavor, the more you do it, the better you get. The more, yeah. you know, yeah. and prototyping is really just practice. You're just practicing the game, practicing, yeah. practicing until you get to the point where you're like, all right, it's, it's, it's legit. We're ready to go. Um, right. So that's absolutely great for new designers. Yeah, your game's not going to be any good. People aren't going to like it. Uh, don't get right. offended. Don't get mad. Right. Get better. Right. You know, figure yeah. out what they don't like, why they don't like it. Put it in context. Some people aren't going to like a part of the game that's actually really good, that right. actually works really well, or you know, other people are going to find yeah. it really fun. And so, the the skill of playtesting cannot be understated. Of how to yeah. discern what information is good, what information you should not listen to. Um, right. you know, all of those different things, but the only way you learn those things is by doing it over and over and over again. You yeah. know, nobody can, can inject that into you. I can't like give you a special cookie that all of a sudden, you know, all these things. <laughs> and so doing it over and over again, man. Yeah. You're, you're dead on with yeah. that. Well, cool, man. Any, any other just kind of random thoughts floating around? Um, I think that hit all my notes. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for, I really loved what you've added to this conversation, Gabe. That, that's been you've added some really great points. I, I love the comparisons to, to sports too. I think that that really hits home. Yeah, well, I come out of a football culture. You know, I spent uh-huh. oh, man like twelve years of my life playing football, and my body regrets that a little bit now. Waking <laughs> up in the mornings and whatnot. Uh, uh-huh. But you know, life. It's funny how life compares to different things, and life compares to sports in a lot of ways. Life compares to board games in a lot of ways, yeah. and it's cool to kind of yeah. draw those comparisons out and, and figure those things out and. Uh, yeah, but I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, episode one, I think this is as good as it could have been. This is this is awesome. Really glad you're the first guest on this new podcast that I'm putting together. And uh, and Jamie, you're actually going to stay around. We're gonna uh, we're gonna talk about some of Jamie's favorite uh, mechanisms in games. He does a really cool thing on his his blog on, on his Facebook page. Where he talks about his favorite mechanisms. So we're gonna go through some of my favorite games, and he's gonna tell me his favorite mechanisms in those games. So we're gonna have some fun in the bonus round here in just a minute. If you want to check that out, go to boardgamedesignlab.com. You can find all the bonus material over there. You can also win free games and get some really cool other stuff that we send out on a weekly basis. So we're going to wrap this show up, jump into the bonus round. So really appreciate you tuning in. And Jamie, thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Gabe. It's been a blast. Thanks for listening. Find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at BoardGameDesignLab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?